I'll be reading from John 15, verses 1 to 11. We have been steeping in this text throughout this series on what it means to abide or to remain in Jesus. These are Jesus' words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, so remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. I wanted to talk about wealth and riches today and its relationship to abiding and remaining in Jesus. The, um, in my newsfeed, I got a notification that the Bank of Canada raised interest hikes and there was all these articles talking about how Canadians, because of their debt load, even these small uh, incremental raises in the percentage hike meant that there was this uh, negative domino effect of financial stress across, the, um, across their lifestyle across their household budget. And we know that financial stress in one area rarely gets contained to just, uh, to just finances, right? When we are stressed financially, it leads to stress in almost every other area of life. I know from studying the topic that within marriages, 80% of conflicts revolve around sex or money. And so dealing with poor financial habits for life in general, is just incredibly important because just as unwise financial habits create stressors that negatively impact every area of one's life, wise financial habits create peace that positively impacts every other area. And I speak from experience here. As a Christian for over 25 years, I have lived through Times in my life that were characterized by unwise financial habits. And I've also lived through times in my life that were characterized by wise financial habits. And so I know the impact and the difference that it makes to live obediently and wisely in this area. And the fallout that comes from thinking that I know a better way. And so what I want to do today is share with you some hard-won truths that are not maybe easy to hear. But there are still truths that I wish someone would have told me and impressed upon me many, many years ago. Probably like most people listening to this, I have never, I never had any formal training or instruction in how to do the money thing. I pretty much lived with a vague sense of values around my money. And I kind of had a sense of how much I make and what comes in and what comes out. And then I just prayed for the best. And today I want to share some steps that I took to grow in financial wisdom 
Because I believe that as we grow in financial wisdom, that actually helps us to abide in Christ. When we are financially stressed, when we are not, when our finances are not increasingly aligned to God's way of doing things, that stress pulls us from intimacy with Jesus. It just wreaks havoc, not just in our financial lives, but in our spiritual lives as well. Now, Jesus doesn't talk directly about money in this passage from John, but Jesus talks a lot about money over the course of his teaching ministry, and it's always connected to the state of our spiritual health. Randy Alcorn writes, how we manage God's money is a central biblical subject of extreme importance. The sheer enormity of the Bible's teaching on the subject screams for our attention. Why did Jesus say more about how we are to view and handle money and possessions than about any other topic, including both heaven and hell and prayer and faith? Because God wants us to recognize the powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. So as we continue through our Abide series, it's critical to recognize that Jesus emphasized that our wealth and riches can easily pull us away from God's priorities, that they can become a trap that keeps us from remaining in Christ and from flourishing in him. In a parable that Jesus told uh, that talked about different seed, the word of God, or the same seed, the word of God being sown on four different soils, in Matthew 13, part of the parable Jesus explains is this, that the seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word and, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the life that God has planted in us. And it ultimately leads to us being unfruitful. And so in a series where we're asking, how do I grow in depth and fruitfulness in my Christian life? Taking a long, hard look at our finances is actually really critical to that process. And there are a lot of warnings in the rest of the New Testament about wealth and riches, but not because wealth or riches or money are evil, but because all of those things are powerful Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not money, it's not wealth, it's not riches, but it's the love of it. It's when we centralize it and put our hope and our trust in money. That, Paul says to Timothy, is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he says this, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Personally, I've found it very difficult to grow in depth and fruitfulness in Christ while ignoring the financial dimension of my discipleship to Jesus. I think it was probably in my early 30s that I really surrendered to the fact that abiding in Christ will necessitate me learning to see and use my wealth and riches to serve God and his purposes in the world. Now that aim and ambition is noble, but how do we do that? And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of this message. And, I, and before I do, let me just make a few, I need, I need to make a, f a few assumptions because we only have so much time. So I want to make some good faith assumptions about um, where you're at so that we can just move on to some pr pragmatic 
uh, advice and some help in that area. So I'm making a few assumptions. Number one, that as a Christian, you do want to honor God with your wealth, like Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 speaks to. That you do want to remain in Jesus and experience depth and fruitfulness. And that you understand, even if not in a complete way, but you understand that financial discipleship is a part of that process of remaining in Christ and having a strong relationship with him. Math, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And then there's this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And if there was ever a story that, um, that were to suggest that God isn't really interested in our money, he's just interested in so-called our spiritual lives, this could have been the story. Because you have this young man who comes to Jesus, asks what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus turns the question back at him. And the young man says, listen, I've been a God-fearing, solid person. I'm young. I'm wealthy. I've kept all the commands. I honor my father and mother. And then Jesus challenges him, even though he, maybe by all accounts, is moral. He's a very sincere, religious, successful person. So you'd think that Jesus might say, okay, that's awesome. You're, you're well on your way. He doesn't. He actually goes right to the root of this young ruler's problem, which was money. And Jesus says, for you to take hold of eternal life and the life that I'm offering you, you've got to forsake your riches, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And of course, the rich young ruler doesn't do it. See, for us, it might be uncomfortable to confront the truth that our financial life can't be separated from our spiritual life, that they play off of each other. And so faithfulness to Jesus in one area is going to necessitate faithfulness in another. I'm also assuming you want, there's, there's a part of you in your best moments where you are, um, you're devoted to structuring your finances so that you grow in financial wisdom. That's something that you want to do. You want to experience the peace and the contentment that can only come from aligning your finances in the way God intended. That, to use the words of 1 Timothy 6.10, I'm presuming you want to stop piercing yourself with many griefs. That you've come to a place that says, I have tried all the different worldly strategies of how to get ahead financially and look to money for my peace and my power, my security, my guidance, and it's failed me every time. And now I'm willing to try God's way. It's scary. I might not understand all the ramifications, but I'm willing to take those steps of faith to align my finances to the gospel. So how do we abide in Christ through our wealth and riches? How do we use our wealth and riches in such a way that they keep us connected and growing in depth and fruitfulness as a Christian? Well, number one, I would say start where you are and progress with faithful little steps. Just be honest about where you are. Zechariah 4.10 says, do not despise the day of small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. A lot of people carry shame and embarrassment and guilt over, I should... I should have my financial house in order or I've been following Jesus for a long time and I really should be farther ahead than I am and I feel embarrassed and I feel like this is an area that is in complete chaos. Start where you are, even if that is a place of complete disorder and say, God, this is where I'm at. Help me. What's the next step of faithfulness? Don't despise the day of small beginnings, the day of just saying, this is where I'm at. It's a mess. God, I need help. Zechariah 4.10 says, the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, 
even a small step of faithfulness, even if it's a little step, God will bless it. Number two, if there's one piece of advice, if there's only one thing you took out of this message, it would be <clears throat> shift the process that our culture tells, uh, encourages you to spend money through, which is this. Our culture says there's three things you can do with your money, and the order is spend, save, give. Spend your money on stuff, yourself, your family, whatever. If you have a little bit left over, then save it. If you have anything else left over and you're feeling particularly generous, then give it away. And that's the process most people live into. They spend their money, then maybe they save their money, and then maybe they give some away. And if you can just reverse that order intentionally, nothing will force you into better habits faster than that. So instead of spending your money and then thinking about saving it and then getting around to giving intentionally, instead start with saying, I've gotten paid. What's the percentage I'm going to give? Now I'm going to save for myself and now I have the rest to spend on. Now I can spend on myself, but I've done it after I've given and saved. And for me personally, just reversing that process from spending on yourself first to making sure I'm giving and saving first and then spending. Everything else that I'm going to talk about, that has been the fuel that has made those things run. Now, when people talk about what percentage should I work towards or what's a good biblical, uh, biblically based percentage of those three categories, I would say work towards a 10-10-80 ratio in the areas of give to God's mission in the world, save uh, wisely for future opportunities and then spend on your needs and wants. So 10% giving, 10% saving, 80% spending. Now, obviously most people aren't starting at that place and they're not even close to it. When, when Heather, for years, when Heather and I were married, that percentage looked more like point five percent giving zero saving and like 102 uh, spending. And then you get to the end of the year and you have this little bit of consumer debt and you're trying to figure out what to, what to do with it. And so what we did is we said, okay, we want to get to 10, 10, 80. So what do we need to do in the next three months and the next six months to just move them, um, move along those percentages a little bit. So we started with one, one, 98, 1% giving, 1% savings, 98% spending. And then every few months, we would just shift those percentages up as we got used to it. Until about two, two and a half years later, we arrived at 10% giving, about 10% savings and 80% spending. And I think that 10-10-80 ratio is just a biblically healthy wise ratio. But for some people, they're not gonna be able to get there overnight, that's fine. Again, just start with small steps, God is delighted to see the work begin and just start with one, one ninety-eight, and just move from there and challenge yourself to keep giving. And, uh, point number four, I talk about tithing to your local church and I'm not going to get into a, we don't have time to go into a theology of the tithe. A tithe is a word that means tenthing, taking a tenth of your income and giving it to God. I think uh, a solid biblical pattern of giving is 10% of your income goes to the local church that you're a part of and investing in. And then you can give over and above that. I will absolutely acknowledge that the word tithe doesn't even appear in the New Testament, but we are to emulate Jesus' self-denying sacrifice 
and give generously and with joy. And if the tithe is instituted in the Old Testament for God's people, and now the fullness of that promise has been revealed in Jesus, I don't think Jesus has come to liberate us out of generosity. I think Jesus came, died for us, has given us new life in him, and has given us not has rescued us from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that we can live into greater generosity. So I think aiming to give 10% of our incomes to the local church that we are investing in is a really good pattern. I would, I would never get legalistic if someone says, well, I do 8%. Uh, that to me is, is splitting hairs. I think, you know, just think through it from the level of, um, biblical principle and priority and do some of your own digging. But uh, I think that there is a significant connection between where our treasure lies and our heart's allegiance. Jesus says that in Matthew 6. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so one of the reasons why we give to the local church and why God has designed it that way is so that as we give our treasure to, into the local church and God's ministry through it, we become stakeholders. Our heart gets pulled into what's happening there. So as I give 10% of my income to this church, I become more invested in the people. Uh, prayers take on a new fervency. I am uh, interested. You know, my heart gets drawn into the drama of what is happening, what God is doing in and through this church. Also, there's a biblical principle that Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians 9, where he says, where he, he's, he's trying to avoid getting legalistic about you have to do exactly this much because he doesn't want it to be mechanical. He says, in Jesus, you have the privilege of giving. And so give generously. But he says this, he says, remember this though, whether you give or don't, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And so Paul is saying, there's just a general rule with giving that the harvest you receive is contingent upon the seeds that you sow. And so if you sow meagerly in terms of generosity towards God, then don't be surprised when you reap meagerly. But if you sow generously, God will reward you generously. And that and that's not a... Um, I don't want that to come across as a manipulative kind of prosperity gospel. If you give God money, he'll give you back tenfold that money, and it's kind of a Ponzi, get-rich-quick scheme. That is not the paradigm that the Bible teaches. I think that's a demonic idea that is rooted in people's lust for money. But I don't want to deny biblical teaching where God himself says, listen, you reap what you sow. So, I, you know, God's not going to become very particular about percentage points, but understand if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will receive generously in return. Fifth point, get out of debt. And the way that we did that is in that percentages of 10, 10, 80 until our debts were repaid. Instead of give, save, spend, it was give, debt repayment, spend. And then after the debt is dealt with, we started using that, those, that 10% to go into savings. Number six, avoid consumer debt. Pay cash for as much as you can. It, you know, generally speaking, if we don't have cash or can't, you know, pay for it directly out of a bank account, we just take that to mean we don't, uh, we don't purchase it. We don't have the money for it. We try and avoid uh, credit cards <clears throat> as much as possible. Um, we try and pay for things outright. 
to avoid consumer debt. I think that's a really, really important habit that many, many people have gotten uh, very loose with in an age where credit is easy to secure and where credit interest rates seem relatively low. Number seven, every once in a while, I'll do a nothing new challenge where I will try and challenge myself outside of food, obviously, to buy quality used or clearance things. So if I'm looking for clothes, I'll just say, I, you know, these, I need three pairs of jeans and three shirts or whatever, but I am not going to pay full price for those. I'm going to follow them online. I'm going to make sure that they, that if I'm purchasing something, it is when they go on sale or on clearance or I buy something used. And so just fighting that temptation and fighting the pattern of just everything that I buy has to be new, just creating a few months of the year where you're like, hey, nothing that I buy this month is going to be new and just see how that goes. And often finding it's not that hard and you save a lot of money doing it. Number eight, consult, sorry, conduct a lifestyle audit. And what I mean by that is everyone lives with a general sense of a general picture of the good life, right? In your imagination, when you close your eyes, what does the good life look like to you? You you have a, a vague picture in terms of vacations and income level and flexibility and opportunities. And it's always important as a Christian to make sure that that picture is being primarily informed by scripture and by God's vision for our lives and not the world's vision. Because the world will continually sell us on an ever-increasing set of lifestyle assumptions. You need this. You deserve this. You've earned this. And there can be this lifestyle bloat where we stop, where, where things that before were wants now become needs. Things that before were nice-to-haves now become requirements. And in the pursuit of all these things in this lifestyle bloat, in this extravagant lifestyle, we begin working harder, longer hours, spinning our wheels. How do I make this money? How do I make these, these ends meet? And it causes all this stress. And so it's important for us to come back to some of our lifestyle assumptions and fight the narrative that consumption equals happiness or that whatever your imagined lifestyle is, that that is actually the thing, that if you got it, you would be happy and content. Because in most cases, that's not true. For almost everyone listening to this, you are likely, you likely have a higher income and a better lifestyle than you did 10 or 15 years ago. But you are likely not happier and more content and more alive because simply because you've made more money and have more lifestyle perks. And so it's foolish to think, well, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just got into that next tax bracket, if I was able to have four vacations a year instead of two, that would be the difference. That's not going to be the difference maker. And we need to be able to confront those lives so that we don't spin our wheels chasing the wind. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this is meaningless. Timothy Keller has an amazing challenge. And he says, the older you get, the more money you make, if you're a Christian and you've been shaped by the gospel, the greater the distance should be between how you could live and how you do. There should be a gap in a maturing Christian's life 
that just because my income increases, my lifestyle doesn't have to increase to keep hitting that ceiling. I can grow that gap so that I can grow in generosity towards blessing God through blessing other people and his purposes in the world. Number nine, just two more. Number nine, and, and this might strike at people's uh, hearts a little bit. This is I know this is a sensitive area, but it's one that I think causes a lot of financial stress on families. Number nine, set limits on children's expenses, both in terms of presence and programs and recreational opportunities. I meet a lot of parents who, out of the best intentions, I think, put themselves, well, well, they'll even admit to me, they, they will go into debt for Christmases, birthday gifts, programs and recreations, because they just think that their kids should have these opportunities. And if the whole family goes into debt because of it and carries out financial stress, that's just part and parcel of living a modern life. And I think, I, I, my heart breaks when I hear that. I don't think it has to be that way. I, I think it's important f- for us to limit um, the opportunities and, and gifts that we give to our children to make sure they're commensurate with what we can actually afford. So personally, for Christmas and birthdays, Heather and I set a limit. We do $100 per child for Christmas and $50 per child for birthdays. And that's it. And that means they get a fraction of what they've asked for. But we also explain to them, Christmas and birthdays are not the time just to get whatever you want. You'll get one or two nice gifts. You'll have a great day. And they've uh, recalibrated their expectations to that. And they're perfectly happy. Programs and recreation, we set a limit. Right now, we do about $225 per month total for our four children across recreational programs. And our rule is if you want to do more, that's totally fine, but you have to pay for it. Through babysitting money, through chores, through, through saving birthday money or Christmas money that you might get from grandparents, you can do more, but this is what we can afford as a family. This is what your mom and I have decided is a fair, good chunk of money to encourage you in these programs and recreation, but that's our limit. So if you want to go over and above that, you have to take ownership. You have to become a stakeholder by investing in whatever that gap is between what we're currently doing and what we'd like to do. And that's really helped to teach our children the value of a dollar, as you can imagine. And the last point is prepare for a fight. This area of financial discipleship just needs continual vigilance. There are temptations to drift all around us on an almost daily level. And so you're going to have to realize this is a marathon. This isn't a sprint. You're going to have to be willing to take steps of faithfulness, a few steps forward, make some mistakes, a few steps back, learn from your mistakes, confront areas of immaturity, confront areas of weakness, seek God's help and blessing, and continue to move forward. But you've got to fight because this is an area that Jesus warns us about, has the capacity to choke out depth and fruitfulness of our spiritual lives. So we need to take it seriously. And I know financial finances are a landmine issue. And it's a difficult subject to broach for especially people within marriages. And it doesn't even matter whether you're married to a Christian or married to someone who's not a Christian, right? I mean, you can have a Christian marriage, but people have very different values about the role of money within a Christian household, and there can still be stress there. Just as much stress sometimes as a situation where you're a Christian and you have a non-Christian spouse, 
and they're trying to figure out what are the values and priorities around which we're going to structure our financial lives. And I don't want to casually throw out these platitudes as if I know, as if navigating those dynamics in a relationship are easy because they're not. I don't know all the ins and outs of of how to move through some of those complexities when you're not on the same page as your partner and you don't have a common vision besides just do a lot of praying on your own and seek to honor God, but in a way that doesn't undermine your marriage vows. I've heard some Christians say, well, my spouse isn't a Christian, but I'm just going to tithe and they can just deal with it. I don't think that's right. I don't think that is serving your spouse. I, I think that is, I don't think you can hold your spouse hostage to generosity. I think you need to pray and you need to ask God to soften your spouse's heart to the place where they can at least um, arrive at some kind of compromise. But I don't think you should ever use your money as a Christian in a way that undermines your marriage vows to your spouse. So this needs to be a conversation you're having with your spouse, whether they're a Christian or not. I want to abide in Jesus's love and grace. And I want to learn to live from a place of wisdom, a place that's rooted and secure in Jesus. And I don't want to see and use finances in a way that causes me to wander from the faith and pierce myself with many griefs. And I hope that that's your heart's ambition as well. And if it is, then dealing with poor financial habits is incredibly important. Because just as unwise financial habits create stressors, that negatively impact every area of one's life. Wise financial habits create peace that positively impacts every other area. And so as we continue through this series, looking at what it means to abide and remain in Jesus, to live a life of depth and fruitfulness, our question before us this week is this. What small step of faithfulness can I take this week to move towards depth and fruitfulness in the area of my finances?